0: I don't think that we can get away from this propensity towards story because, um, as Ben O'Cree put it, we are story beings. It's actually the way we function.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. Today we're taking a step away from science per se to look at the role of story in the formation of our worldviews, uh, which for generations has been our really our only method alongside direct experience for understanding the world, as opposed to the much younger and more modern method of hard data from scientific research that we tend to examine here on Chasing Consciousness. But we are continuing this all important job of our first series to establish the limits of what science can actually know. So today we're gonna to start understanding how some of the story-like information found in our psyche Uh, and perhaps in the way our lives unfold, can give us some clues to the nature of human reality and so go on to support our scientific research in psychology. So who better to help us navigate this troublesome academic area than award-winning social anthropologist, Dr. Carla Stang. Carla earned her PhD in social anthropology at the University of Cambridge, and she's held the position of visiting scholar at Columbia University and associate researcher at the University of Sydney. She was awarded the prestigious Frank Bell Memorial Prize for Anthropology from Cambridge. So based on her field work with the Mehnaku, Carla wrote a book called A Walk to the River in Amazonia, which we're going to be talking about in a little bit. She writes for the Dark Mountain Collective, uh, which advocates uncivilization, which I can't wait to talk about, and has created a mysterious new project called Imaginal Futures. Hmm. Most recently, she's co-created the first Masters of Philosophy at Schumacher College and is currently at work on a new book, An Ecological Cross-Disciplinary Collaborative Project. So I cannot wait to get into this. Um, So let's go. So... Carla Stang, Dr. Carla Stang, welcome to Chasing Consciousness. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you?
0: I'm very well. Thank you for having me here.
1: Dr. Stang, before we get into the importance of story proper, I just love asking my guests about the, their first inklings of deep questioning when, when they were younger, when they were kids, teenagers. Tell me, what were the first burning questions for you that you simply had to pursue and that may have influenced you in your choice of career? Have you managed to answer any of these questions, perhaps?
0: Um, The burning question for me very early on, probably around age 10 or 11, was this sense of what else is there in terms of human experience because my own experience I was born in England and I was growing up in suburban Australia in Sydney was that I looked around and I was dissatisfied even as a child with the culture that I was living in Mm. and I found um, a more meaningful kind of life as a very young child, in fairy tales and stories and novels, um, particularly fantasy novels, mm-hmm. and I, and but then there was something in these books and um, and certain theatre pieces and things like that that I wasn't experiencing in my everyday life as a child in this in this culture, um, and then I watched two particular films that. Um, I still remember kind of uh, shook me and put a spin on this feeling that I was having. Um, And the first one of those was Greystoke Tarzan. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Yes, I
1: love that film. She's
0: a Tarzan movie. Ralph (laughs)
1: Richardson in his very old age as well.
0: Yeah, Yeah, he's great in that. And... um, yeah, so that film, um, it connect it showed for some reason, um, it showed me that my own culture was arbitrary in a sense that it wasn't a given that human. Civilization—that there was something wrong, in a sense, with Western human world, which this movie showed. Um, particularly when Tarzan goes back, you know, home to England, and has this massive shock in his kind of animal experience of the world, rubbing up against this kind of very stiff English, you know, Victorian culture. So um, I was—it made me very emotional. This film, particularly when um, he released that, you know, when he releases the apes. Um, and at the time I didn't understand why, but I definitely felt this more of an affinity, which, you know, obviously the film is trying to have this happen with the Tarzan figure than I did with the um, Western culture. And um, and it was a passionate feeling that there was something wrong. and um, And funnily enough, we'll come to this later, when I went to live um, and when I was doing field work as an anthropologist in the Amazon where there were no TVs at the time, there was no, nothing like that, there was no electricity actually, these dentists brought a projection, uh, a, a projector and and um, showed that film <laughs> while I was sitting, of all films. It was an incredible... Um, coincidence, synchronicity, whatever you'd like to think. Um, that, that And I'm watching it with them and it hit the same notes for them as it did for me in the laughter with, you know, the silverware, the, the cutlery at the table and fumbling around and that kind of thing. And then the other film was The Mission.
1: Oh, wow. It's
0: about the, yeah, Ugh,
1: the it's a big one. It <laughs> blows you away, doesn't it? Just like, oh, colonial nightmare. Yeah.
0: So that film showed me what else there is, you know, that there are cultures. And I was always fascinated with nature. There was this, like, tangle of wildness at the end of our lane um, of, like, Lantana and things under the train tracks. And I was very attracted to this space of wildness or of nature, of not this culture. And so when I saw this other culture and how they seemed to live You know, in keeping with nature, in this way, in this other way. Um, So it just showed me this other way, and it was you know the Amazon. And I do wonder whether that planted a seed for where you know one of the streams of my work um, led.
1: Hmm. Interesting. And and do you think that that your decision to look for that other thing that you were lacking? Have you answered any of those questions? Have you discovered what it, what it is that's better?
0: It's not so much. Well, in some ways, I mean, it's not um, a fashionable thing to say in the anthropology uh, anthropological community that you know one cosmology is better than another. But there certainly are, <laughs> you know, um, there certainly are cultures that. Lend more to what William James called living life with fullness, as fully as possible. And I think that um, cultures that, like Amazonian cultures, like the Mekinacul people who I live, who I do work with in Brazil, um, those kinds of people do have a richness of experience in some ways that is more uh, full of life and full of meaning.
1: Okay. Well, that's definitely something worth looking for in life, isn't it? (laughs) So, um, by means of introduction to our main topic today, which is around the importance of story, I thought that a little anecdote would be fitting. Um, American sceptical philosopher Alex Rosenberg wrote a book called How History Gets Things Wrong, The Neuroscience of Our Addiction to Stories. And in this book, he laments our ability to get sucked into history stories and to mistake their narratives for fact. He complains that we're hardwired for stories. And we respond far more to narratives than we do to hard data. But Mm -hmm. the absurd and rather wonderful part of this story he said, is that very few people bought this book, Um, so he decided to write a novel about it instead. And yes, you guessed it, it became a bestseller. (laughs) (laughs) The irony. So, Carla, what do you think? Do you agree with his diagnosis that we are hardwired, that we're addicted to story? And to what extent do you think it's a problem for the evolution of our worldview as we respond more to potentially to narrative than the data that scientists and academics such as yourself are working so hard to help us understand the world better?
0: Um, Okay. This is a very interesting question. I don't think that we can get away from being, um, for this propensity towards story because, as Ben Okri put it, we are storied beings. It's actually the way we function. Now, so to evolve out of that is to become inhuman in a sense. Mm. And the impulse to do that does make me wonder. It's like there's a wonderful article by um, a physicist and a philosopher called Eugene Minkowski, and um, it's about well, this it's in a book of his called um, Towards a Cosmology, and he talks about the difference between the poetic and the scientific glance, and he uses this example of um, this little girl looking at the stars in a novel of Balzac, and and her wonder looking at the stars, and then I think it's her um, her nanny comes out and or her mother comes out and says, there's no point looking at the stars, you're not an astronomer. And he moves in this piece of writing um, towards saying, even as a physicist, and this is something I experience a lot with scientists that I know, that um, that they have a sense, that their work in a sense is poetic. So it, it has story in it. So he says, what Minkowski says is there's a structural alliance between humans and the world in which the poetic nature of the world um, is being experienced. Sorry, let me put it this way. When someone experiences or writes poetry or expresses something like that or story, they are expressing that inherent um, aspect of the world mm. and and I find that science um, you know things like you know studies of dark matter and quantum things and things like that they are moving more and more towards understanding that this is actually a, an aspect of the world so I don't think we, you know, it would be to destroy the world and to, to destroy ourselves. Um, and, in, in fact, you know, for me, to ask that question, that is probably the most beautiful aspect of our being. The other thing is I think that science is a story. It's just a different kind of story. So if you think of what an experiment is, it's actually like the description, a narrative of an adventure. The hypothesis is this is what we're going to do, this is where we're heading going to go on this adventure and then it describes the adventure and at the end you see the conclusion of the adventure it's the conclusion of this story of discovery which is one of the reasons i find science so exciting so i don't really see the need to i think that these are different storied languages in describing the world is what i want to say science and narrative um but i do see his point because I think he also makes the point that we fall for bad stories often in history. Is that right? I think he does say something about He's that. He's definitely
1: criticising uh, the fact that we take history as fact rather than as a narrative. And obviously, you know, as I, I can't remember who famously said it, that, you know, uh, history is written by the winner. Um, yeah, yeah is, is I, I think a very uh, brilliant geopolitical statement about the nature of of the way history is told but i think he was probably frustrated by the same thing that drove me to make this podcast which is this desire to bring new information that can take our worldview forward and this this first series is with this whole podcast is basically saying we need to update our worldview and All the data's there. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, quantum physics alone, we're talking about more than 100 years of quantum physics, and we still haven't assimilated the the implications of that. So that's something that I think is really important, and maybe he was a bit frustrated with that. But let's come back to that. Let's stay with story for now, Um, Carla. Now, something I really want to spend some time on today is Joseph Campbell. Now, Joseph Campbell... um, also an anthropologist, right, Colin?
0: Well, he was a comparative philosopher, mythologist. Mm. So he, you know, the essential part of anthropology is actually the fieldwork, mm. uh, the fact that people go out and experience things and learn things firsthand. He was very, he's the opposite of that. He was more of like an armchair philosopher where he was yeah. reading, you know, different accounts of different like you say, narratives and histories and written things and making theories out of these written accounts that he he could find.
1: And he studied stories from all over the world, uh, throughout history, from all different kinds of cultures, and he discovered a common pattern um, in the most popular ones, which he called the hero's journey or the monomyth. Can you help introduce this concept, because I think it's going to come back later on in this series and probably well into the rest of the podcast, this this cycle, the hero's journey that he noticed. And after you've introduced it, I'd like to ask you if, if you think there's an underlying significance of these epic stories for our own lives, and maybe that's why they're so popular, or are they just fun stories? Is there a deeper significance?
0: Um okay, so let me start with um, just describing joseph campbell's um just the the narrative really of the hero's journey, as he puts it so um as you said, just by way of introduction, he you know read mostly read and a huge number of myths, and then found this patterning of this one he in in his in his words I think it was that he said that there was one great story um, beneath all of these different narratives and um, and this story is is as follows that you have the hero um, and later he included the heroine um, and they're living their ordinary life and um, and there is a call to adventure as he said so um, for something calls, Hit them out to go on a journey. There's usually there can be like a a key or something that they have to take with them on the journey. Um, There can also be a mentor figure at this point um, who gives advice about this journey. And then there's this crossing of a critical threshold um, into this other uh, into this other space of um, of adventure. So they've crossed into usually quite a dangerous field um, where they experience various trials. The critical uh, at some point there's uh, there's usually a victory or um, the defeat of a dragon or some things like that um, and and then entering into the innermost sanctum, which is often a cave, and places like that where there's um, a very sacred magical thing happens which often is um, thought of as a sacred marriage or an encounter with the goddess for men and for women it's an atonement um, by the father then what happens is there's um, this choice is given to return and if the you know if the narrative normally moves towards this return, where the this hero has to return to the ordinary world, and there are usually more trials, um, even sometimes worse than the initial one, in order to do that and then once the hero returns there 's this what uh, Joseph Campbell um, talks about as like a double vision, so this person has transformed. Um, to have this idea of, uh, they have the wisdom that they've gained in, you know, in in this kind of initiatory experience in the middle. They've gained this experience of the other world, and now they're living in both worlds. Mm. Um, and and the some of these stories, that's in some of these stories, that's a gift to the world around them. Mm. So basically, in a more simple uh, structure, you would see it as. Uh, a departure from the ordinary world, a transformation or initiation in the middle, and the third part would be the return. Mm
1: fantastic so there's this yeah. idea that um that the the hero or the protagonist in their quotidian world needs to be drawn into this world of the unknown and to face their deepest crisis to go through the hardest possible mm-hmm. thing for them in order to receive some reward and come back changed transformed more knowledgeable to face their quotidian life um do you So did Joseph Campbell think that this was something applicable beyond the myths themselves? Did he feel that this was something that applied to our own lives or did he not not go that far?
0: Oh, he certainly did. And he wrote poetry about it that has become very popular with this idea of following your bliss, which is this, you know, the thing that would call the hero out into the adventure. So absolutely... um, I would even he certainly thought it under, it was an underpinning of the way that the world works a very important part of this the part that I really like because I you know like many people have a lot of um, problems actually with this you know the way it was presented in the myth itself um, the um, the way that he I don't know whether you want me to get into that. Please, um, please
1: tell me what comes up for you, Carla, because this is exactly, it's one of the main focuses here.
0: Yeah. So, well, it is absolutely a part of Western life, this myth. And um, I would say the problem, I mean, the the most glaring problem for me is that it is, you know, he, as he himself put it, calls it a monomyth. So it's this kind of um idea that there is this um one you know out of all of the different cultures in the world it all boils down to this one story now as an anthropologist it's um it's just factually untrue (laughs) that that's the case it's just absurd even so um and there are many ways that I I'd like to go into because I think it is really important because I think it is a western tendency to assume for, you know, not everybody, but I think there is this kind of common sense notion that we're all human, that all, we're all the same, and I think that's very reductive of human life. And, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, this cultural particularity really comes from the fact that actually this story, which he was most interested in Indian um, religion, which he studied in, at great depth, and Western religion. Uh, you know Western mythologies; those are the things that were most familiar to him, in a sense. And obviously, he, you know, he's coming from this American culture. So, actually, I don't know if you know about the Indo-European kind of foundations of Western of the Western world.
1: No, um, I, I can't. I think
0: it's really yeah. I think it's really important to understanding this myth because. This myth, this um, structure really comes from an Indo-European cosmology, it's a very particular way of seeing life in the world and the individual. Um, about 8,000 BC, sometimes it's said that it's later than that, about 5,000 or even 3,000 BC, but it could be as early as 8,000 BC, there were waves of um, a people called the Indo-Europeans and no one is sure where they began some people say it might be on the Russian steppes, but there were waves of migration that spread down into and you know, eastern to India, all the way across um, western, eastern, and western Europe, um, and wiped out, colonized, all kinds of things happened wave after wave, um, for thousands. Of, you know, it depends how far you go back, but for, certainly for a very long time, there was this. Um, this, this is, kind of This is theme. the original
1: Aryan race is it not? The original yeah, Aryan
0: so race Yeah, so that idea of the Aryan race and so, you know, say in Europe you would, ha- you would have had all kinds you know, and all over actually all over these areas there was there were all different kinds of culture that, um, that had nothing to do with this kind of uh, tripartite kind of society which was all about kings and ritual expert, kings and warriors, ritual experts and farmers. So that wasn't the world that they were encountering and these, world, these worlds were um, not completely obliterated, but in some cases were. Mm. Um, and so this story of conquering, which is really what a hero's journey is, essentially, I mean, at the centre of the hero's journey, there's usually most typically the slaying of a, beast like a serpent or something like that and um so I think it's important that we remember that this is a very you know contextualize that this is a very particular cultural myth and it's one that has caused a great deal of destruction in the world um, so um it's also and I, so I do think that it does underlie much of how we see our lives. So because it's at the, you know, for thousands of years, it's been the story, a central story that we've been telling ourselves in these parts of the world. Um, and
1: no accident, is, perhaps, that we are encouraged uh, by these myths to fight for our transformation rather than perhaps to allow that transformation to come to us in a more, more naturalistic way. This idea that we have to go into the unknown and we have to seek out our, our nemesis and face our fears. These are all very warlike images, aren't they?
0: They certainly are. And, um, yeah, for example, it's a very good point you're making for it makes me think of, um, the vision quests of Native American Indians, for example, where in order to gain knowledge, it's a similar, you know, initiatory process, but it's a rec- it's usually a receiving of knowledge. You know, you go out on your vision quest and you have contact with the numinous, you know, the great mystery in some form. It's a particular form, and you receive knowledge. You don't slay the, <laughs> the bringer of the knowledge, or. Um, or there isn't necessarily, it is difficult. So I don't want to completely, so there are two things I really like about the Joseph Campbell journey, uh, approach. First of all, I think that he it was really important that he brought... Um, uh, Western society that was very much leaning into kind of a completely um, scien- common, common scientific kind of view of the world, and he made myth important again, that he puts it, um, he made the world transparent to the transcendent. Um, so that's what myth is supposed to be. So it is, I think that that is true, that a lot of myth, not all stories, but a lot of myth mostly probably all myths are about contact with mystery of life of the universe of nature so i think that's really important um and i think that it's true that in all kinds of culture we do need to face demons and what and sometimes slay and things like that so it's not that this story doesn't exist in other cultures it's just not the central it's not the story of humanity which is the way he 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 put it himself Um, and I think that what it does to a lot of people is that you know if you go up with stories of Rocky and you know these you know because Joseph Campbell was used in these textbooks and you know as an actor I'm sure that to write screenplays and a story only works if it hits these notes and I think that if you grow up watching these movies of heroic action that first of all your actual life very rarely, you know, I, first of all, because it's a line, it's a linear arc. So you, you, I, a lot of the time your life, it's like, I haven't got there yet, you oh. know, so you're not living in your, you're not living your life. You're waiting for your life to get heroic <laughs> or you're on the other side of the heroic phase and you're in anti-climax. Right. And um, so I don't think it's a particularly helpful myth to have at the centre of one's culture, um, apart from the fact that it has wreaked and continues to wreak, you know, colonialist destruction all over the planet. Mm. I mean, in terms of Western people for themselves, I don't think it's, I think it's quite an unhelpful or a difficult life and a very lonely life to live um, mm. And I think also the important thing for me as well is that the individual, it's all about individual self-knowledge, you know. So, again, it's, it's this process of, um, remind me to come back to initiation, by the way, because
1: I'll Absolutely. forget. Absolutely. No, no, no. So, this is the second um, thing you like about it, I'm sure, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the self-knowledge thing is that, no, no, the second thing I like about it is that it does actually exist and is helpful in some part. Okay. It's the mystery that's helpful. The, the, the thing about initiation is that I think that we lack initiation in our culture. So mm. what is happening is it's almost like we keep this is a story of initiation, and it is a valid thing. Initiation is crucial to, to human growth. Well, it is growth and experience, you know, fulsome experience of life. But it's like we're on loop with this story, like we have to keep self-initiating and then there's nothing else. There's no, um, there are no, the world isn't talking and we'll get there later because the world has its own stories to tell. Mm. Um, but coming back to this monomyth thing, um, yeah, this idea of self-knowledge is like, um, <clears throat> it 's so centered on the human and the self and the individual that and even though often the hero brings back a boon and, and helps they don 't always so it's often it 's just about the human doing this for themselves and having this transformation for themselves and Of course, this is not um, particularly conducive to a wonderful com- communal life, and most societies have myths which actually are not do not have <clears throat> are not centrally about one person achieving success, mm. so um, so yeah, I think that 's important to note as well.
1: Thank you, Carla, for identifying some of the problems with this often um, shall we say the, Campbell is often put on a pedestal isn 't he, and, and that this is sort of considered to be the the answer. Um, for including myth in our modern culture, but just yeah. to mention what I think is important from this, because it's it's touched me a lot. I tend to see it less about the slaying and the um, the the murder and the danger and the fighting. The thing mm-hmm. that really I noticed when I saw this, I was like, ah, oh, because I've been very lucky. I've had many calls to adventure in my life and I've been lucky enough to have been taught that it's okay to follow them and that, you know, not to be scared. Um, Mm. But what I did notice was that these crises, the low point, you know, the deepest into the underbelly of the unknown that one goes, um, and this idea of, of crisis and of just basically being at your worst, you know, you're totally at the mercy of your worst fears. Yeah. For me, that bogeyman, that that monster, that dragon, is a symbol of one's own fear, and this idea that one's own fear—the fear of the unknown, the fear of the thing that you actually aren't brave enough to become because it's unknown—that itself could be a block. And until yeah. we're put in a position where we have to survive, uh, you know, it's it's that or die it's, it's get it or die. You know, Mm. that for me was the key here is about fear is about facing a challenge. Um, it's about the comfort zone and saying, listen, actually it's a lot easier to stay in our comfortable everyday life where we know what we know, but that life tends and stories tend to throw up these, these little invitations to come and face your worst fear and your biggest challenge. So Tell me, just just before we move on to you know um, the the female version of the hero's journey, if it's any different, do you identify with any of that? Do you think that Camel was onto something there? If we look at it through this lens, that's slightly less literal and a bit more symbolic, is there anything mm-hmm.
0: there? Yeah, absolutely. As I said, I do think that it is helpful to have that. Um, and I think it does exist in numerous cultures a- across the planet. This, I, this narrative of, and to think of one's own life in that way, and experience one's own life that way, and 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 bear the trials of it, and be rewarded. With them for doing so, and you're absolutely right. It's not always a slaying of a serpent. Um, <clears throat> there's all kinds of ways that the trial can play out in, dif- you know, in different stories. So I do actually think that it is a helpful story. I think that it's important to see where it came from. I think it's important to see how central it is, and whether it should be essential. Why it's essential as, as as it is, what story it's telling us over and over again, and whether this is, you know, even the word monomyth, what about all the other things that life is about? Like you're a parent. I think that sacrifice, for instance, and I'm not talking heroic sacrifice, I mean like not doing the things that you want to do to do stuff that feels really boring sometimes is to me in a way, you know, and there are stories that, Talk of you know, say in Amazonian stories, it's it's less about there are kind of heroic stories, and we'll get into that later, but it's more about upholding the world as it is because it's a difficult world to live in. So it's almost like it's a privileged position to be in to go on an adventure, and, and this is this kind of a side point. I saw something on the social media recently, which uh, yesterday actually, which was about you know these people. Especially young people going off to Tulum to this kind of Burning Man thing, um, and you know what this particular person had just done—you know, a three-week trip of taking ayahuasca before they did—and you know it became a super spreader event. So, but to them, I'm sure they were following their bliss and have it, you know to the, the way that they spoke about this experience was as this heroic journey that they've just been in the jungle of Mexico which is not where ayahuasca is from anyway and they've taken ayahuasca and what have you and they've gone to this thing um to to follow their bliss and they've come out the other side of their hero's journey and now they're partying you know with absolutely no care for you know, what was going, the consequences of acting like that. So I think in a way, staying with this, keeping this myth at the centre, and, and I know because it was important to me when I was in my early, late teens and early 20s, and I made some very silly decisions because of it, but that's okay, I guess. But the thing is I just think that it needs to be tempered by other stories and larger stories, like stories of, you know, ancestors. So, yes, there's an ancestor in the initiation story, but actually, Jung, who Campbell draws from, you know, relies upon. He, I think, he does so in a very simplistic mm. manner, mm. Um, and it's not really his fault because I think that Jung has mostly been misunderstood, actually. And um,
1: in what way? I'm not
0: going to. Um, well, this is not solely my opinion. Wonderful historian, kind of the leading historian um, on Jung, a man called Sonu Shandasani, um, who was responsible for publishing the Red Book. Mm, And and the Red Book, kind of in a way, has brought Jung to life in what he really was and what he was really about because it's his own account of his own. <clears throat> confrontation with his own psyche and his own development of his own psyche. And basically his theories, he says himself, emerged from these experiences that are documented in the Red Book. And what becomes clear from the Red Book and what um, Sonu Shandasani and, and, Joseph, uh, and James Hillman, another um, very important Indian. Um, an important um, intellectual in his own right, what these people are saying about the Red Book is we've got it wrong. Actually, Jung uh, says himself that, and James Hillman, who um, says himself that we really don't know almost anything about the psyche. These, these linguistic theories that, that we've been using are handles. On, they're almost like he uses this word apopatraic, which is a very difficult word, which, um, but it's an interesting word. It means that we're using this language to ease our anxiety about the unknown, about stuff we can't really handle and get a grip on. And what Jung uses the, words, the word grip, that's what concepts are for him. But he didn't mean and he says, I can't remember the exact words, but he says, I think he literally says, woe betide those who live by examples. Do not, he says in the Red Book, try to follow exactly where I'm going. So for him, this language was important because without it, in his own experience as a practitioner of, you know, and as a, as a physician, was that without language, the language helped with madness. There could be madness for certain people. But they were only meant as signposts to have your own experience. They weren't things in and of themselves. They were just a way in to having this experience. And he himself didn't use those concepts in his own clinical practice. Absolutely. If someone said and it's a Buddhist idea.
1: It's a Buddhist idea, isn't it? This idea of. Um, of mental constructs you know beware the mental construct it's not the thing in itself Mm -hmm. our idea of it and listeners um you know Jung is going to be playing a big part here so do look up our episodes from this first series on the collective unconscious and on synchronicity more mental constructs for us to (laughs) be using in our navigation of our extremely complex um, psyche and psychology Let's just chat for a moment then about initiation. It is a question I've explored in past podcasts. Um, My old podcast, Badger Radio, we did um, a show on rites of passage, if anyone wants to go and look that up. And what came up was this possibility that the Western culture never really found, I mean, you know, obviously the sacraments of Christianity are rites of passage of a sort, but sort of since the Enlightenment, um, the Renaissance change of focus towards solely material uh, reality, there hasn't really been a replacement for those rites of passage, um, which mm-hmm. most commonly are important for young people moving into adulthood and trying to understand their role in the community and their role in the world, uh, and trying to put aside the playful ways of of being a young person to take on that kind of responsibility. Interesting that in Amazonian culture and other um, uh, indigenous cultures, very often that's associated with a death-threatening event, which brings me back to, to Campbell again, this idea, okay, you have to go off for three days without food or you're going to be given a severe hallucinogenic that you may come to the edge of your psyches in sort of integrity, the edge of madness, or you're, you yeah. have to face a wild animal or something like this. Um, what do you think is the consequence for us as a culture that we don't have that on our way into adulthood. Where does that leave our adults?
0: It leaves a society of children, of mostly children, and old people who are even children, of elders being, in the true sense of the word, being a rare phenomenon. Um, And, you know, it leads to things like governments led by people who act like children. you know, so it's a very dangerous space to be because it's this idea of, um, you know, just following your bliss in kind of a very simple, I know he meant that in a much deeper way, but I think that it is in this more kind of pleasure-seeking principle and not one and, um, you know, the obvious consequence uh, that no one is thinking of consequences um, because, I mean, Jung, in terms of elderhood, Jung said something very important, and this is a kind of idea of initiation. It's a very deep one, I think, that comes out of the Red Book, and it's that our lives are about answering the unanswered questions of the dead, and when he says the dead, he means all of the human dead. Continues
1: so, the project in some way.
0: Yeah. So that is such a different kind of a project, uh, story, in a sense, to the hero's journey. It's and that's what the red book actually becomes, and that's what, say, James Hillman's psychology really should be and become. It's this, and the dead. When I say the dead, I mean the dead that they are alive in us, you know, in you know, in their own way, but still in a real way, because we tend, and this is something that I think we'll talk about later. Um that we think of things that are imaginary as unreal. That's why we the word imaginal came to be, because to give things that are not of what we think of substantial reality, but are real in their own way. So so the dead are if the dead are real in their own way, and our, you know, to become an elder then and to become a culture worth, its soul, worth, you know, a culture that is um, one that engenders fulsome life um, for everyone, um, including ecologically speaking. I think it is really looking as you, you know, coming right back to the beginning, looking at the stories of history, but but really, but the truth of them. Because it's all about, and I didn't say this at the beginning um, because our conversation meandered somewhere else, but um, I think that, you know, science, whatever kind of stories we have, it's all about discerning, being discerning about the stories and what, you know, you can have so, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing, but so, um, yeah, so if we listen to the stories of the dead, then we won't, you know, in a very simplistic sense, make the same mistakes that we did say, you know. Um, and I think this was very important to Jung because he just, you know, coming out of, you know, he, he almost, you know, the First World War happened and he almost, he says, foresaw that happening. So this sense of, like, we need to learn history's lessons and we need to come to terms with the dead. And until we do that, we don't have a society worth speaking of and in other cultures and relationship with the ancestors is more central for example you know it's as central as initi- initiation it's a daily practice in most cultures so i think those kind of cultures are very different to ones where we lack initiation and have zero relationship with our ancestors or very little meaningful relationship with them
1: and yet somehow for me this idea of a uh, of of a hero's journey that comes to this crisis where we are facing our biggest fear and probably the most difficult thing we've ever done, for me, the initiation is there, which is Mm -hmm. this this confrontation with something that I have never, uh, as a a young person, been exposed to. Now, as an adult, I am right there feeling the brunt of, of the terror of facing what, which I think Jung called the the abyss, the darkness mm-hmm. hidden behind this, this dark abyss of the unknown is, is so terrifying for me that in itself, just getting used to that abyss of the unknown Absolutely. could itself be an initiation. And I wonder if that's not what Joseph Campbell had in mind.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. That is, as we were saying before, I think there's all different ways of thinking about the trial and that confrontation with darkness is another way of thinking of that of that experience and how it does transform you. Mm. And, um, of course, we can go on many. I think it's very good that you're bringing this point up um, in the way that you are because I think that in our lives we can experience and do experience a number of initiatory experiences. Um, it's harder in this culture because we lack formal initiatory structures to help us mm.
1: um
0: through those different um through those stages and we can get stuck
1: yeah par- par- i mean we're maybe not taught to look out for those those calls as well those calls to adventure yeah. or to notice that those crises are extremely useful transformation points um yeah. let's go to maureen murdoch psychotherapist maureen murdoch criticized mm. campbell for not adapting his model to the sort of heroine's feminine version of the hero's journey. And when he Mm -hmm. replied simply, well, the monomyth is applied to both men and women, uh, she decided to create her own model of it to sort of make up for that fairly poor response from Campbell. Do you agree with her that the cycle plays out slightly differently for stories with female protagonists?
0: Um, Not necessarily, and yes, I would say i would say that it depends so i think that women exper- can experience exactly the narrative structure of the hero's journey and the slaying of demons and or experiencing of trials in other way and transformation and i think that um also as i was saying this i think what she's saying is you know what i was talking about before that this myth is central to our culture and this, and, it's, and there's something wrong with that being central there's these other things that should be happening and for women for, and women, I think she says it just for women, but I think it's true for men as well. there's another kind of story that can, be, can also live alongside because of course it can be, we can have many myths in our lives that we're living with. Um, so the other story is kind of a healed, redeemed version as I see it of the hero 's journey so instead of an arc first of all, where it 's a linear progression through stages to the end it 's a cycle so that already is changing things because it allows for this kind of idea of oh if you feel that you 're experiencing this initiate you know you 're experiencing this journey it's almost it, you could be anywhere on this point and doing it again and again so it 's just this feeling of failure or anticlimax or whatever. Um, Her big sticking point, I think, was that there um, was this idea of patriarchy and that the way that the hero's journey was structured um, for women, the big journey for her, and she thinks is the equivalent central journey, is that the sacred feminine, as she calls it, and many do now, Needs to be healed, the wounded feminine needs to be healed because, in order to live in a patriarchal society, she says that we need to dis- that there's a, often a distancing of the woman from, from her female kind of matrix, from her female life and her mother and that life in order to achieve and almost become manlike in the world. And that for her to actually experience a meaningful journey, she actually has to go back. To the feminine, after she realised she feels the emptiness of that achievement because it does it feels empty to a woman according to her, and then she wound you know she meets with the goddess she becomes she immerses in her own way with sacred feminine and also then binds the male and female together and integrates them psychically so and and that 's the end of the cycle so it's the, so, it's,
1: so it's, it's almost like, like this there's a layer beyond almost like there's a there's a heroine's journey before they can even go on the hero's journey because they can't face their worst f- fear until you somehow it, it healed this this uh, this very open wound which is causing a lot of a lot of uh, agitation and, and what I would call triggering and then only then can you really set off on a genuine initiation to, to genuinely...
0: No, I think she doesn't even like... It. I mean, to me, I think she's saying that the call to adventure in that whole arc is kind of faulty in a way. It's like it's only happening for a woman because she lives in a patriarchal society that she tries to become part of, which she doesn't really fit. You know what I mean? So I don't know that she'd have the heroine go back into the hero's journey.
1: Interesting.
0: Um, I don't know I mean that's an interesting way of thinking about it Um, I certainly agree with you that I think that both of these stories can be lived by women in meaningful ways
1: Mm. Um, one of the points that stayed with me very strongly from Maureen Murdoch was that there is no assistance at the beginning before the passage into the unknown into the dark world mm -hmm. there is a lack of the assistance as if it is, there is part to break out of this patriarchal thinking. It, it is necessary for them to find their own feet without assistance and to take this on.
0: taking place to taking a place in that world. Absolutely, I think that's a very very important point. And I think that it's true. Um, I think that so that's why I think that it's a healing story for men as well because I think she's really saying that the story. That I think that men can also live the cycle that she's suggesting as well. Um, I personally think that it's important because I think that these words of sacred feminine and sacred masculine are bandied about a lot in Western, particularly in New Age Western culture, and I think that when that happens, the terms can become reified, like they become like, solidified as if they are just these things and I don't I think that the way that they're being characterized is not necessarily it's just kind of like this stuff that people have decided at some point in the last 40 in the last few decades it's like the the female is yielding the female is um is darkness is yin like all of these kind of associations of feminine and masculine I think it's very important to realize that they are not As such, they're just our current cultural constructions, partly historical, partly taken from other cultures. Um, So I think that's really important because she says things like, well, we need to become more, you know, in this cycle that she suggests, there's a stage where the woman, when she integrates her masculine, is then able to express her feminine. Why is expression a masculine quality? So I have problems as an anthropologist. It's not so much that I have problems. I just want people to realize that these things are uh, cliches in a way. To mm. use an ordinary word.
1: Well, and they're buried in each one of us, aren't they? As you know, as psychology, both Freud and Jung would yeah. hold. You know, there is the, the 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 anima and the animus within us, causing its own little uh, interaction, its own little story, very different for all of us. Well,
0: perhaps. Because the thing is that I think that's important, and as an anthropologist I have to point this out, that I'm not a psychologist. So to me, the psychological model, anima, anima, shadow, what have you, these are Western cultural constructions. They're just one cultural way of describing the, the, the of human being. Mm. They're not necessarily the way I feel my own being works. And as you
1: mentioned, they're highly reductive. They're highly oversimplified. Exactly. Carla, I'd like to, just before we, we take a break, um, I think it's important to get to your idea of events of consciousness. So I know that Mm -hmm. your work explores this idea of events of consciousness uh, uh, sort of various discrete levels of existence so for example it might be a quotidian level or a mystical level or a ritual level can you explain a bit what you mean by an event of consciousness um, and and do each of them have a different purpose evolutionarily?
0: I do you know what when I use when I have used that those terms I don't mean to kind of reify them again as categories. When I say event consciousness what are, the emphasis is actually on the consciousness. So when you look at say things like ritual um sleeping in late on a Sunday morning um go uh dances Death like any kind of ex- human experience what I'm personally interested in my work is um, devoted to understanding these things as they are actually lived as they are um, as they come to be as in a human consciousness so when I say event actually um, what's interesting that I found is that in one event and you can kind of um, apportion the event in any way you want. You could put the kind of brackets around a ritual or you could put it before the ritual starts and two days after the ritual ends. You can kind of bracket it wherever you want and then that's the event and then you're describing this experience. So in a way it was just like a demarcation of like a defining of terms of what I'm interested in. I'm interested in this experience from here to here, um, just so that I can come to terms with it.
1: And did you find that there was a difference between the direct experience that you term here an event? I mean, did you find there was a difference in purpose for yeah. these areas? So, for example, let's say a mystical experience. Right. Um, you know, is there a different, is there a reason in your, the way you're seeing it? Is there a reason why that might exist in complement to? A quotidian experience, no. it, 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 could it be that each one has a different purpose?
0: Well, you know, that what you're talking about is very much what is called in anthropology functional anthropology. So that's like, what purpose does, what function does this particular thing serve, which is not really what I study. I can because I'm more interested in what well, I am actually interested in. It I'm more interested in it is how did the people or how does the person, whether it's my neighbour or an Amazon, you know, my friend, my, my OI in in the Amazon, how that person experiences the purpose of that thing, you know. So um, because otherwise it's just a generally a generally a white person saying, oh, that person's really the real reason they're doing a ritual is because it helps the society together or whatever when that might be have nothing to do with actually why that's happening
1: yeah i'm not necessarily looking for a a sort of um anthropological purpose i think perhaps mm. i was interested more because i'm interested in this idea of peak states and we're yeah. covering psychedelic research you know a lot, mm. I, I rather love one neuroscientist thing where he said well look why would you dismiss an experience uh, say a, a psychedelic experience. Why would you dismiss that when it's an amazing opportunity? It's it's consciousness on, you know, on steroids. You know, why would we miss this opportunity to study that? And I wondered if perhaps you might have seen these these different adventures of consciousness in this way that they're all windows into the personal experience, into the sense of meaning and what what makes up. The life, you know. For example, mm-hmm. you see there to be a distinct difference between something as intense as ceremonial experience, as opposed mm-hmm. to just you know playing with with the kids in the dust.
0: Well, what you know? There's two things I'll say about that. First of all, I think it's a really interesting question, and um, I think that one thing that I found that I think is really interesting is that something we call the ordinary is not just ordinary so things that we call mystical cosmological social you know social gender all of these categories that we put actually shoot through and make up the experience of the ordinary as well as the actual you know things that might be happening so just say you're washing clothes at the river or something you what you know you're in your consciousness you're washing the clothes at the river but you might also be because you have a mythological understanding of what the river is and the beings in the river while you're washing the things at the river that exp- you're also at certain moments thinking of for you the water is not the same as it is to a western person washing the clothes next to you For you, the water means something different and you actually experience it differently. So then the mythological, the cosmological, this kind of mystical is actually part of ordinary activities. And in terms of purpose, I absolutely think that there are different qualities of consciousness that uh, have, yeah, as you put it, different purposes. So say what you're talking about in terms of ecstatic or psychedelic experiences, um, they're really related to what experiencing myth is too, just coming back to our central subject. Well, can so, I was going to
1: say that wonderful that you've, you've, you've come to this just at the end of part one, because mythos, this yeah. idea of, of uh, you know, it, it kind of is the reason, isn't it? Um, this idea that there are... Our mythos, our reason for doing things, the story we bring to situations. You even mentioned that science has its own mythos. You know this this search for mm-hmm. objective truth. You know what a lofty, what a lofty mythos. You know how wonderful it would be if we could get the whole way with with the tools that we have of measurement. But but um, it, it, for me, it's really interesting to to understand that we have um, a story in all cases. So the the most materialistic, the most you know, nuts and bolts view of the world. There is a mythos there in the mind of that person washing their clothes, at the river, regardless. And I think it's quite important that Western people remember that, that we're bringing a mythos, no matter how factual or, or experiential or uh, realistic, materialistic, that's a mythos in itself. And that's conditioning the way we're seeing the world in a very strong way. And in a way that, May actually even uh, shut us down to an openness to new information, which I think is very.
0: Yeah, very blind, yeah to certain facts, even as a scientist. It may, I think it makes one blind to certain things if one is very locked into a common sense or even an, um, a progressive sense of science. So, so
1: this, uh, is a, this is something we're covering a lot in here in the first series, where we look at things like the backfire effect, our inability to change opinions more easily. We're looking into things like the left brain interpreter, which is this part of the brain that makes up rational explanations for things, but then fails to tell us that actually that's just a hypothesis based on previous experience. But, but it's, it's, it's come through as absolute fact to us in our consciousness, these elements of Of our consciousness and of our bias seem to be hugely, hugely powerful in the resistance to new data, in the resistance to new information that does threaten our worldview. So, you know, our intention here is to is to update our worldview based on research, such as that of yourself and, and other scientists. Mm-hmm. But but we're also being quite honest about the fact that that can be quite a challenge. And what tools do we have as the public as we're navigating it? So, Carla, thanks oh, you so much for luck. sticking with me for this first hour, I'm focused mostly on, on Joseph Campbell and on the pros and cons of the, the hero's journey. And uh, we're gonna take a little break now. Um, and uh, we'll be back in a minute to talk about more of Carla's, uh, Carla's work in a bit more detail, uh, particularly your book about the menihaku, the, the, walk in, uh, the walk to the river in Amazonia. We're going to talk about multidisciplinary approaches, which are becoming, in my opinion, more and more important to academic uh, approaches. We're going to be talking about uncivilization. <laughs> so curious. I can't wait to find out all a bit about that and your extraordinary new project, Imaginal Futures. So don't go away, people. Um, Do stay with us for part two. So hello, everybody, and welcome to part two here with Dr. Carla Stang, social anthropologist. Welcome back. Hello again. Thank you. Hi, Freddie. I want to, um, to start talking about multidisciplinary work. And I know that your work is becoming more and more multidisciplinary, drawing on philosophy and psychology as well as anthropology. Can you speak a bit, a bit about why we need that interdisciplinary thinking and, and why we need to think across the boundaries of these specific, slightly isolated academic fields if we wish to get a sort of big picture insight into human nature?
0: Well, it is exactly, as you say, to get a bigger picture on a specific issue, you know, question. So if you have a question, one thing that universities that are really embracing this idea of multidisciplinarity are doing is they, instead of having departments of different, you know, um, formal ideas of subject that we traditionally have in academia, um of science, anthropology, sociology, psychology, what have you, they have departments of question. <laughs> I think that's something that could really spread. So I was at he- Hebrew University um, and talking to the director there, um, and he was explaining how that's how they structure their space. So what they'll do is they'll have um a question that needs to be solved, like an issue that needs to be solved, for example, I don't know if they're actually addressing this issue in Hebrew at the Hebrew University, but if you have an issue of, say, the virus that is going on. So instead of just having everyone working on it in their separate little offices and separate departments, you'd have this is the thing we're trying to fix and then you get all the different people from different subjects who can speak different languages and describe different and bring different insights from their separate fields and discuss it with one another um, and come up with a solution together. Because, of course, you know, the questions themselves don't necessarily, you know, don't care about disciplines and, and departments. So to really address them, we need to cross them. And there needs to be, you know, Less competition, I think, in America where I'm living at the moment, there is a there is a lot of competition um, between academics within academic academic departments. So people won't share the information. They won't discuss their findings because they, in order to, and it's the same in Australia too, in some ways, that in order to maintain a position, you have to publish an original paper so you don't want someone else to... And it's all about publishing papers, and I think that this system of academia uh, is obstructing knowledge, because knowledge um, occurs best where there's a sharing and a cooperation and um, a mutual inspiring. I was um, I did my PhD at Cambridge, and one thing I think really works about Oxbridge is that because in each college. The colleges, which is where you spend most of your time, are not by department. So at dinner you could be sitting with the royal astronomer, um, which is what I would have, and, and a physicist and a psychologist and, and someone doing business um, informatics and all these different people. And in our conversations... Some of those conversations I think were probably some of the most inspiring conversations and impacted more on my work than what I heard inside my own department. So I think that cross-pollination between um, these traditional um, kind of inward-looking systems of knowledge is really important um, and and needs to be progressed.
1: And it seems to me that the specialisation is a great idea, and we've seen the benefit of it in our sort yes. of post Enlightenment age. But but it seems to me there needs to be an unspecialization at the end of that, whereby all of the important implications of these researches then get reintegrated into the sort of global worldview. It doesn't make any sense to take something into a specialisation and then leave it there, locked in its own context. You know, as it's you.
0: Like I've forgotten his name. Who wrote the novel about it? Yes. It's Yes, yes. It's
1: important.
0: It's like you know. It's like you have this knowledge, and I think that you know, as there is, there does seem to be. You know, everyone can call themselves an expert these days on the internet, and that's a real problem. So I think you're right that the specialization is so important, and it becomes harder and harder to do this kind of focusing in, this devotion to a specific body of knowledge. That is so important because then you have something to give, but the giving also has to happen in whatever way, um, you know, with other disciplines in couching your idea in a story that brings it to more people or whatever the case may be.
1: Mm. And how are you using this in your new project? Um, You know, why is this one particularly interdisciplinary?
0: Um, Well, I think actually I've always been – um, a straddler of disciplines <laughs> because um, because my question was so fresh and important and remains so, um, it wasn't so much that I just wanted to be a certain career and I would do whatever it takes inside that career. I had a burning question, as you put it at the beginning, and in order to answer that, I, I need tools from all different kinds of places and I'll take them from where I can get them. Yeah. And so... Um, for me, say, anthropological theory is really, um, can be very ironically um, distorting of cultures because most of them don't recognise their own secondary nature. So they don't recognise that words and language and theories which are built on theories which are built on theories, which is what most anthropological theory is, are not the lives that they're that they initially see, sought to describe, you know. So um, so for me, because my question is about actual life and what are people actually experiencing, what works for people, I needed other tools, the theoretical things. As Goethe said, grey are the theories and green is the tree of life. You know, it's the theories can really get in the way of seeing the truth sometimes. They can be very helpful, but you need to use them as tools and recognise them as tools. So um, the tools that I found were like an anti-tool. So phenomenology um, and phenomenology, which is the study of consciousness, allowed me by calling, you know, going using phenomenology, it was almost an excuse I could say well I'm doing this legitimate thing I'm looking at consciousness because that's what I wanted to do and I'll, and so this philosophy gave me a way into doing that and radical pragmatism and empir, um, radical empiricism and pragmatism which is you know people like William James these are other philosophers um, it's very similar to phenomenology so instead of consciousness they talk about experience so these two ways of going of addressing a subject matter um, really appeal to me because what it meant is that I could just respect the life that I'm witnessing and being part of, and um, and not impose my kind of, uh, constructions from. See where my own prejudices are. See where my theories are coming. Use my own language and theories break them down, which is like a phenomenological and you know, a way that these philosophers do things, using a language to describe another experience. So in order for me to experience your experience or an Amazonian experience, I only have my own experience. So in order to understand someone else's experience, I have to use my own experience as building blocks or I have to use the reader if I'm writing a book. So I have to use language and the words on the page to evoke in the reader from their own experience, so there's this kind of lost in translation thing that can happen too, what these other people are experiencing. So then language then, instead of being this thing like, you know, like a Joseph Campbell thing where it's like this is what is happening everywhere in the whole world or whatever it is, you're saying no, what is happening here for these people? i don 't understand it kind, and you start from where there 's a commonality. Oh, I kind of understand this, so i 'll use this these it kind of looks like um, this realm of experience so i 'll talk about that, but then it 's different here and it 's more similar there, and it also has that, and so you can build up a picture of other people 's experience um, in that way. So I found philosophy really important in doing that and, um, and psychology. As well, we um, spoke about Jung, and Jung has been very important to me because I've worked a lot with alchemy, alchemy. as a focus of his. So, you know, it's really in terms of this question of multidisciplinarity, just bringing in um, whatever, whatever is going to help best in answering the question that you have before you.
1: And it strikes me that there's an element almost of what we might call in science triangulation, you know this idea that okay, well, that makes sense from this discipline's perspective, but what about if we examine it from this completely different point of view? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh look, we're coming to a quite a similar conclusion. maybe I was onto something now let's triangulate that with you know coming to philosophy or you know medicine or whatever and say, oh oh, and actually there's co- there's correlations here, so I find it quite a useful thing. <laughs>
0: To the point that refreshes. As soon as you bring a different language or viewpoint, modality, whatever you want to call it, Blitz. into something that you've looked at the same way over and over, and you bring this fresh way, like in these conversations with people at a table from other disciplines, suddenly you see your own problems in this totally different
1: way. Absolutely. It can be a good problem solving tool. So moving on to Walk to the River in Amazonia, your 2009 book. um, You connect these quotidian habits of the Mahanakou people of of the Amazon with the way that they understand intellectual concepts like cosmology or gender. Tell us a bit how the book came into being, what it's about, and and maybe even what we can learn as a Western culture from your study of the Mahanakou.
0: So um, this book was really came out of this central burning question of my childhood. So it was really an answer of that question of, like, what is it like to be a person who experiences the world in a completely different way um, and who experiences it in a way that... um, is more meaningful in certain ways that I intuited. But it was an open question. I wanted to see what that was like and what those meanings would be, especially in terms of a relationship to the natural world. Um, and so that is the question, and that is the question that runs through this book. The um I think that what, why I chose ordinary reality as a, the kind of language for describing this is it's almost like a basic unit of experience. It's like, it's like when nothing in particular is going on, what is it like to be these people? So instead of saying, like, what is it like to be them when they're experiencing these kind of intense things like you were talking about, ritual, ayahuasca, whatever, marriage, dance, death whatever it is, what is it just like to be them on an ordinary day when nothing in particular is going on? Because I thought that, you know, I know for myself certain experiences can be radically different from one day to the next, or my sister has a completely different experience, and I think that's really important. It's not an exoticizing; it's just an open question, what is it like if you live in a forest and you've had a completely different, you know, history and, and experience of your landscape? so um so this idea of ordinary reality was born from this and um and the book is is um held by these two walks well it's not actually two walks it's the one walk from two perspectives from my perspectives where it begins um you know is like a, a clueless person i've just arrived and i'm walking I was <laughs> yes.
1: i was very, I was very really humble <laughs>
0: I was very clueless in that environment and, um, you know, and in some cases suffered the consequences of being that clueless and really not, you know, sensitive at all to what was going on Not and also without the tools yet to even have a clue what was going on with the people, these these women that I was walking to the river with and these children. So um, it starts off kind of with this description of, the things that you can draw out, you know, things that I learned about how they okay. experience the world and having gained that knowledge, going back to that walk and then feeling into what that walk might have been like for this other woman walking now that I have all of this knowledge. So um, that's the aim really, to look through the, look at the world through someone else's eyes as much as possible. Um, so I think that's probably the basic description of
1: the Great. book. And can you, can you tell us a little bit about this idea that you connect the, the quotidian oh, yes. with the philosophical, the, this idea? You even mentioned it in part one when w- we spoke about this idea that actually for them, the philosophical, cosmological, mythological ideas of as, associated with the natural world that is very much a part of their quotidian life might completely alter their quotidian experience. Talk talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so what actually happens is at the end when you read this description, it is so different to my experiences and so similar in other ways. And and these elements, you know, because I'd written, the middle of the book really is just, much more like an ordinary anthropology book. So you, it's like, oh, this is the shapes of the cosmology and this is like what gender is like and this and what have you. And then you actually see what it's like actually lived, which is what I really wanted to get to. Like it's all very well to make theories up about what people are like. Like the cosmology is like this, but the cosmology doesn't exist in and of itself. It only is something that's been written about, drawn out of the experience of these people. So in a sense, it's putting it back into the experience of the people and seeing, like, what is it actually like? And what it is like is exactly as you um, hinted at, that, um, you know, if you're walking along and the sun is kind of beating down on us, and for me, it's like, oh, I'm getting a tan, and for her it's it's a totally different experience she's like it's it's this myth the the sun is a mythological being karma, and he's this really Im- crucial being in 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 myth, who's kind of aggressive, a troublemaker and kind of eats you up. So her feeling of, like, the sun on her skin and the sun stuff touching her skin and her experience of the body, which is another thing touched on in the middle of the book, is different to mine and what it's made of. So her whole experience of the sun touching her skin is completely different to mine. And I think that that's really important because, um, because, Human experience is important and I think that these, I think that academic theories have tended to gloss over the richness of what other people are actually experiencing. And a lot of the time with people who are called primitive, which is one of my other pet Hates about Joseph Campbell is he called these cultures primitive? Yes, that was of its time, but he also treated them like that. It was like a hierarchy of cultures, and when you actually learn something of what it's like to of someone else's experience and the richness of that experience, perhaps that experience has aspects that you have no. Well, like what you were saying before, you have no way of knowing about with your limited actually much lower if you want to hierarchise perhaps way of seeing things, and theirs is far richer and more complex and more more detailed or more knowledgeable. So I think that it, I mean, on so many levels this kind of knowledge is important, especially when the world is becoming more and more, you know, homogenised. So these people um, are... Are like, you know, they're not living the way now. You know, I'm in contact with them almost every day still now because they have electricity there now and things. So it's not the world that I, in so many ways, it's radically changed and will continue to change. So I think that it's all, I think that, you know, just going on it again, because you asked finally about like what's important, like what can we learn from these people that um, that they are you know, people make up all kinds of theories on social media or on very basic theories without having done any research about like what societies might be like if they were better in this way or that way or how Western, we can change Western society or why, how Western experience is deficient in some way or psychologists wondering about how, why West, we have these kind of neuroses in, in Western culture. And I think that it's important that these glimpses of other experiences as um, limited as they are, because obviously they're not you know one they 're not even close to being one hundred percent accurate they're just approaching another person's experience will teach they, it it helps teach what we can you know the other possibilities of of human existence and um and without that. And as it's being lost, we might lose them altogether, uh, uh, lose some of them, I mean, not lose all of them altogether, but but um, these ex- experiences of the world are crucial and um, for the people themselves, most importantly, and um, and out of respect to those people, and also do allow all kinds of other, I think, disciplines to learn from, say, psychologists or social um, theorists. I
1: mean, I having, believe I believe yeah. that we're in a bit of a meaning crisis at the moment, um, and I think that this meaning crisis comes a little bit out of the lack of initiation that we touched on these rites of passage into adulthood, but also uh, perhaps from the the gap left by reductionist, scientific uh, understanding of the world that leaves mm-hmm. us sort of quite devoid of, of a meaning from quotidian reality. So you mentioned that there was some other things you wanted to speak about regarding the importance of myth. What is it that you think that are uh, 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 people like the Maenarku who have their uh, a very different mythology to our own, a different mythos, a different reason for being, if you like? What is it that gives that culture of the Maenarku so much meaning in their quotidian life that we don't have in our mythos, in our worldview?
0: Well, first of all, the world isn't dead to them. There's a sense that James Hillman put it that way that science has uh, not science but because um, that's not true because science actually really can enrich our view of the world but um, historically what happened in West in the Western cosmological and general common sense outlook on the world is that we hoarded soul from the world in a sense over time so you could some people like place it around Aristotle he, you know, um, he makes this kind of classification of soul where and it's a hierarchy starting with mineral, um, plant, animal, human, and all of these, their souls are actually now not souls, which they were previous to this, say with Plato and before. They're now just kind of something more like what we would call biological processes, and the human has something like a soul But it's not like a creative, unique intelligence. It's an interchangeable rationality, like something that, like a brain almost, it's it's leading to that point. So the minute that happens, as soon as you start believing that, then the world stops having its own kind of soul disclosures. Like you're looking at a tree and suddenly it's just a biological process, whereas previously it was a soul and say for the mehinaku, which I'll get into in a little bit because I know that was your question, it's, it's an actual being that, in, that you can actually meet if you go into another world. So, um, so I think that this kind of the, what you talk about so, so well, that, that, ter- that I like how neat that is, That like this crisis of meaning, is that the world, we walk out into the world and there's so much effort needed to live in it. Because if you live in a world that's that where not where like you think you've got a journey that you've got to make, like the hero's journey, but the world is really just a backdrop to that. It's just this kind of dead stage backdrop of like biological processes or whatever, however you see it. Um, and then so nothing's really happening, like you don't really care what's happening in the birds flying over there. It doesn't really matter. None of it matters. So you have to bring the soul is only in you and in your you know the people around you. So you have to bring your soul to keep the world, as James Hillman put it, aglow. It's a huge effort. So as he points out, it's no wonder that people are prone to cults and ideologies and things like that because they're grasping for meaning or narcissistic neuroses where they're grasping for the feeling of uniqueness that was robbed. Of them, thousands of years ago, by Aristotle, and not him personally, but yes, him personally, and the whole culture. So you know, um,
1: what a wonderful but yeah. yet yet terribly sad um, way of looking at it. But it, it seems really, really, really true. And and I wonder just to come back to the sort of central burning question for today's conversation about what we can use is there anything we can yeah. bring back from from that that can be useful to science and psychology in terms mm-hmm. of understanding the human condition in terms of understanding what we need uh, in terms of tools what we need to research as anthropologists as psychologists is there anything we can bring away from this looking at yeah. people like the Mahanaku that, that we can actually use as a sort of practical guide to saying well listen story mythos actually gives us this clue about the human condition that we need to look into further
0: yeah well absolutely it isn't it's as easy as like you said about lenses like changing your lenses it's like go i mean it's not that easy because it's something that needs to grow over time and it's it actually requires a kind of transformation of outlook and culture but um I think it is possible for Western people. And I'll say how it happens for Meenaku in a minute as an example, um, as a beautiful kind of living example, is that what James Hillman as a psychologist is noticing from people like this and from actually our own culture, he was obsessed with Florentine um, Renaissance and um, Ficino because for him, You know, there have been people in Western history who've been keeping the soul alive. It's like a speak, it's what Novalis called the true history of the world. It's like this that's not true actually at any level um, that you want to kind of speak from. So he says that the way to do this in every and it is a way in every way life is something he calls aesthesis, which is actually a Greek term, you know, from the word aesthetics, which is that. If you're breathing the world in, the word "esthesis" as- has the notion in the ancient Greek of breath, that, that aha, like when, of wonder, like you're breathing the world in.
1: Breathing beauty. That,
0: yeah, that you're breathing the world in. You go out into the world and the world is talking to you, each and everything in its particularity. Because as William James, going back to the philosopher, said, philosophy said is that intimacy is made by particularity by details you love your child because of who they are in particular with you and the world doesn't feel intimate because you know it's they're all just trees rather than if you have a relationship with e- each tree and each thing has its own soul and meaning and he calls um, and you're breathing in this kind of you know, and scientists experience this a lot, this wonder and mysteri- mystery ultimately of what you don't know, which is on the edge of your understanding. Um, I think ind- Indigenous people, a lot of Indigenous peoples are much better than that. And we were, you know, ind- you know pre-Indo-European <laughs> things is this kind of um, living with what we don't know and being okay with that, without that apopatric you know what i that term of like trying to shore up with bulwarks
1: well and without Um, without needing a myth where you have to face your most terrifying fear
0: you know just just, just just to be aware of
1: the unknown it's like well actually it's quite And also the
0: world that's around you right now even if you're in a room like you are i'm here and i'm looking out the window and my cat i can hear my cat downstairs but all those things matter as soon as he uses his other term, noticia, which is it's like a it's it's also another kind of an idea of um, the way that we can be in the world where we're noticing in detail the particularities. I mean, in psychology, what they've discovered from Buddhism is that idea of mindfulness of like when you do apprehend things in this particular present way somehow i mean they don't theorize about it but uh, their lives are full of meaning what i would say and bringing it to the main is that um that for them if you have a cosmology where <clears throat> where there are many worlds right of, of Different consensus realities, which is something that scientists and so you know scientists talk about, and um so social theorists talk about. This is actually a um a sense of the world where there's an awareness that there are forces um, beyond your understanding shaping your life. Now, as soon as you have that feeling that there are forces beyond uh, forces shaping your life, you're not alone anymore in the world. And it gives meaningfulness to the world. So and your life. So then you walk out into the world and you're, you're part of an open-ended emerging story that is in relationship to the open-ended emerging, unfolding stories of everything around you all the time. Now that's not a lonely world. <laughs> It's a world rich with experience. And not only that, it's not only the meaningfulness, it's also that um, myth is, it's not just to kind of uphold the sense of sacredness, which is so important. It's also knowledge. It's actually these stories are are, um, descriptions of actual forces in the, in the natural world that the will live with all the time. So these myths are knowledge. Um, so that, that gives a whole other dimension to the importance of myth, that when the mehinaku say, um, and I've written about this, that you know there are invisible essences in the landscape that are producing the physical manifestations of reality, which is kind of a quantum idea in some ways, um, they know something that's from their thousands of years of being in this landscape, and the myths that describe that are um, are useful to them and to their children, who they tell their myths to, because that makes them knowledgeable and aware of these forces that are that that they need to live with in a in a in a very dangerous world. In that case,
1: fascinating, brilliant. Well, Carl, if there's nothing you want to add uh, about the Menehuaku and and the importance of myth here, I'd like to move on to the Dark Mountain Project. Um, In the Dark Mountain Project, which I know that you write for, it calls for the uncivilization of society. I'm just going to repeat it because I love the idea. Uncivilization. What on earth does that mean? and
0: <laughs> why do i love
1: it so much
0: yeah because i think that's very interesting that it that it what does it do to you
1: well you i mean that? there's part of me that is a bit of an anarchist and a nonconformist. so i i really <laughs> i think in my journey being brought up in a um you know in a sort of you know the average western education where there was a lot of focus on science and on fact and and on civilization and the history of civilization. Uh, and this kind of, as you say, this view of everything non-Western as, as primitive. Mm. I think I've come to see certainly looking at the, the fallout from the, you know, the great capitalist project. Um, I've come to see civilization as a bit of a loose cannon and Mm. not only, uh, um, a loose cannon, cannon, potentially without guiding values, but potentially even um, potentially even something that is doing more damage than it's actually um, solving. So it's kind of self-serving. This idea of you know um, bringing civilized thinking or civilized democracy or 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 banking structures or whatever it may be to less developed countries. You know, just when I see the way that that plays out generally, which it seems to be that it's basically a lie, and once those structures are in place, they're then used to basically completely corrupt a situation rather than to civilize it. Um, I I have some serious doubts about civilization. Yeah. <laughs> but it's sorry, you've, you've totally thrown me by asking me the question that no, you were that. about,
0: even, you even were even about to answer.
1: But I thought I'd roll with that. That's great. I'm part of you. No, your I love project. it. I agree.
0: <laughs> no, that's fantastic. That, I mean, that's really very similar to um, things to what I was going to say. That, um, <clears throat> I mean, in terms of the Dark Mountain.
1: Tell us a bit about the project. What is the project?
0: Well, do you know what? I'm not an expert on that project because I have only just written a couple of things for hmm. them, and I would like to talk to, um, to Gould Hine and Paul Kingsnorth, who formed, um, who wrote the manifesto and things. Um, I think, I mean, in my very general knowledge of it, I have I have read the manifesto many years ago. Is this idea exactly as you say of Finding the story of civilization toxic, for want of a better word, like one that is not, um, is not working, has brought us to the brink of ecological catastrophe, that we need to, there's a call to action in the manifesto, that we need to recognise that it is a story, first of all, coming back to the things that we've been talking about, recognising it as a construction, that it's not... <clears throat> what it's done to other um, stories, what it's done to the natural world. And they call specifically for a de-centering of the human from the story. So they like stories a lot where the human isn't at the centre of the story. But It is, you know, it's a real moving down onto the land, like the stories of the earth and, um, <clears throat> and stories that aren't, uh, yeah, because as I was saying before, this idea, say, of the hero's journey of self-knowledge and the human at the centre of this story is not necessarily the way that stories work in other cultures. So, um, so for example, there's this beautiful um, essay um, by this woman um, about Japanese fairy tales and how different stories can be so where they're not, the human isn't at the centre and there isn't a trajectory like that. Um, it's called the bush warbler. She gives this example of the bush warbler and where basically, I won't tell you the whole story because we're short on time, but the solution is, an, she calls it an aesthetic solution. Oh, no, it's actually the theorist who wrote this book who she's referring to, an aesthetic solution to the story, which is just that. The end of the story is that the protagonist or the center of the story, but it's not really the center, experiences this moment of beauty and then it's gone. And that's it. That's the story. So we kind of think of stories having to ha- like hit certain notes, but they don't in other cultures. For them, the image of nature of like the loss of beauty in itself might be one of, as she puts in this essay, the most and I and we should put it on the like a note to what exactly this essay is on the, on as the a note show. on the, yeah, that, because um, it is a beauty. Is that it is um, that the that the story is more um, that kind of story of loss might be the bravest story of all. For instance, and that's a very dark mountain <laughs> kind of a story because a lot of it is about yeah. facing where we've come. And they talk a lot about like this unwillingness to face it, really coming to terms with it. So a lot of the work done for it is just the coming to terms with what where we actually are right now.
1: How much do you think that the age of reason uh, and this what I sometimes feel is a reduction to a purely matter led understanding of the world? How much do you think is that of, is responsible for some of the? Uh, I want to use the word atrocities, but but some of the mistakes, let's say, that civilization has made along the way. uh, Western civilization I'm referring to here. How much do you think is the fault of the age of reason, of the Enlightenment thinking of this reduction, this soulless reduction to pure biological process and matter? Uh, How much do you think is the fault of the of the, the age of reason. And is there anything that we can do maintaining the huge benefits that science and technology have brought? You know, w- is there a way that we can kind of balance this out without sort of losing the benefits of science and technology, but at the same time, being a little bit more humble and, and honest about where this has just gone too far? And it's it's sort of pushing pushing the limits of what actually the earth and, and society can can, can handle:
0: Yeah yeah I absolutely agree with you that <clears throat> that the age of reason uh, uh, and what came with it is responsible for, for, the, for the, you know the systems or the civilization that we live in, because as I was saying before, if the world is just dead matter, then who cares if we plow through, you know, destroy an entire forest, to frack, for instance. There's no consequences. There's no, we're not killing anything of any importance. So, so if you lack an awareness, a cosmological awareness of the realities of what is actually there just because you're blind to them, because that kind of age of reason, to me it's kind of like a blindness, like you only see tree. It's almost—it's very simplistic, you know what I mean. Whereas to me, an Amazonian perspective is so much more nuanced. You have these different consensus realities that are formed by different perspectival kind of position groups, and you know it's just a complete—it's a very intricate and um, very intricate kind of a view on the world. Now, what I want to say also is absolutely science can help us because science is not there. real science, like the science of like the cutting edge physicists and what have you. They don't believe in dead matter. They know that's common sense. Well, like we're lagging in common sense knowledge of the world, uh, uh, of science. We're like stuck back. I don't even know how, how long ago in our sense of the world. We're still carrying kind of almost this Victorian sense of science that isn't real anymore. That's not what the scientists are even discovering, um, particularly theoretical physicists and people like that. So. Um,
1: Well, my question is, can we readdress this balance from within the current system, or do our favorite stories and myths teach us that the Phoenix effect tends to apply to our phases of civilization? Just look at history. I mean, old paradigms seem to have to crash and burn fully before a new one can emerge from the ashes. How much do we have to sort of pay homage to the phoenix effect that we see in all of these myths and in our own society's history to accept that perhaps something does need to completely collapse before we can build something in its place i wonder if if really looking at history it, it's going to be possible to make a, a readdress of that balance from within the system as it stands from within this civilization as it stands
0: well i think that um I don't know, honestly, how this, I think that uh, that a transition has to occur if we are to survive as a species, absolutely. I personally don't know how that will occur. Um, Social transformation happens in all kinds of ways. And they're also, you know, paying respect as a person who studies myth to the non-human as well, that we don't even have all of the knowledge about how everything works. To, to have the arrogance to say, I think we have to be humble. like we don't know how the change will take place. We just have to do our each of us do our part. And um, I think that one of the things, like you said, is like bringing the science, like bringing the science, which I know is really the work of this podcast to a large extent, that is real the real science that's happening into the public sphere so that we are brought up to date and let's bring this is the anthropologist in me talking but also the humanist let's bring these theories of people who have been pushed down pushed away not included called primitive let's bring their theories about the world right into the center because ours are not working
1: so what, what an extraordinary point and uh, something that I really want to look into this idea of Western science as just one of uh, the world's many sciences and approaches yeah. to Science is whether you know for example Vedic science you know would be interesting to look into that with this idea sort of top-down consciousness first kind of approach Um mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of assumptions in Western science that that um, that other sciences from other parts of the world just wouldn't accept, and I mean, I'm very interesting, you know, in the next series to, to to put those together. So, what about imaginal futures? It's a very mysterious website. I do encourage everybody <laughs> to go and take a look at it, and I think obviously, you know, that's probably part of. Of, of what you're trying to do. Tell us what exactly is Imaginal Futures and, and, and what are you hoping to do with that and can people get involved?
0: Well, maybe I shouldn't tell you. <laughs> that was a joke.
1: <laughs> leave me on the edge like, no! <laughs>
0: it's a mystery. Um, well, Imaginal Futures, um, I'm, I'm creating with two other women um, in England um, and it really was born out of a master's degree that I created with um, Dr. Martin Shaw, who's a well-known um, expert on myth and other things. Wonderful, um, a wonderful thinker and writer. So we wrote, we made this uh, this master's degree, which was really basically more like a journey. As we put it in our invitation, it's like getting on a ship and instead of colonizing the world, uncolonizing it's very like an uncivilizing idea, unmapping the world as it's been mapped to see what mysteries still exist in the world now. And it actually ended up being really a journey through. Hitting different parts, exploring different parts of the human imagination from the very beginning, like from before Homo sapiens sapiens, like Neanderthal time, all the way to now, um, and exploring what the imagination is and has been to various cultures in different times and places, um, and come after this this course, um, the group that. Was you know we had an incredible experience, all of us, including teachers and the, and Paul North actually taught on the course from Dark Mountain. So it was very interdisciplinary. It was completely interdisciplinary. We had all kinds of people teaching scientists and philosophers and um, writers and psychologists and all kinds of things. And that idea of the imagination having gone through the past, it was like, what? Well, well, what now with this richness of knowing what's possible with the imagination and what the imagination is or could be? Um, so the reason it's called imaginal rather than imaginary, so we're heading into the future now on the ship in a sense, <laughs> is um, is that, as I mentioned before, the imaginal, using that word, is a way of redeeming what's been called imaginary, kind of like the rubbish of our real experiences of the world and giving them their own import, um, even fundamental import. And this word was coined by um, a, a scholar of Sufism who interdisciplinarily influenced many people his name is Henri Corbin, Corbin and he wrote this incredible seminal essay if people want to check it out called Mundus Imaginalis which was really the foundation of that master's course that we taught and it is the foundation also in a sense of imaginal futures where there's this idea of um this idea that there is apart from the, you know, our, the phenomenal world there we experience um, and our, our lives are underpinned and um, moved by forces just beyond our understanding that we do experience in things like dreams and active imaginary states where we're awake and things like that. And that these realms which often form stories if we work with those stories, they can—they have an incredible ability to change reality because of this underpinning way that it works. This reminds so, me
1: very yeah. much of um, this this idea of artificial intelligence and humans. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea: oh, artificial intelligence will overtake us. Um, yeah but the thing that artificial intelligence will only ever be able to copy is our ability to imagine and to create and i wonder here you know referring back to what you said earlier about the fact that the imagination is is somehow spurred uh, by by the age of reason as a sort of delusion it's like oh yeah that's art that's that's just creativity that's not based in the real world it's not real fact and yet how many things have we seen not only scientific discoveries but also genuine Mm -hmm. innovations in the way we now run society or uh, political innovations or solutions to various problems these have all come out of somebody imagining it and going, oh, wait a minute, that, yeah. that could actually become real. So for me, this this ties in very, very nicely with our conversation because we've got this full circle between the fact that without that imaginary ability, without, without that ability to create mythos, mm. we wouldn't have a story in the first place. And we would be sort of the victim of... Of the of our own circumstances, so actually, I like this idea that the mythos is our responsibility, and it is up to us. I was thinking you made me think earlier of the Aboriginal idea of dreaming, that that this, this dreaming our way into the future, not in a airy fairy way. On the contrary, just literally letting what we imagine come into being. And as you said, what a formative way uh, of sort of. Bringing that into focus than writing stories about it. So, all I can say uh, to sort of wrap it up, Con, is just, you know, so brave of you to come up with such an ambitious uh, message coming out of academia to take the importance of story and myth as a really strong guideline for where we're going with our futures. Now, bearing that in mind as a wonderful closing point, Carla, is there anything you want to add in terms of what's left to say about myth? What's left to say about Mm -hmm. the importance of story? And most importantly, what academia has to do to be humble enough to recognize the importance of that uh, Mm -hmm. in a sort of cyclical way, where in some way it's underpinning where we've come to, And that science itself and and progress itself follows a mythos of evolution or, you know, vice versa, that we're somehow living out uh, somebody else's myth. Is there anything you'd like to add just to close? Because it's just been an absolutely wonderful conversation. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, I would love to add that again, it comes back to that multiple, I don't know why I'm having difficulty with this world, multidisciplinarity. Um, <clears throat> so people like Bachelard and Eugene Michalski, who I mentioned before, they were scientists who became philosophers. And also I've read more recent similar things from physicists um, that there is this sense that um, it helps to have an anthropology of uh you can do an anthropology of anything, so I think have, bringing that anthropological cross-disciplinary perspective on any matter, like if you're a scientist, I think it helps to think about: Am I making too many assumptions here? In my, am I leaving something out? Am I, am I blind to something because of my cultural lens on, or whatever it is? So I think that's a really helpful thing in terms of story and anthropology, which is like. And the kind of anthropology I do, where we really ex- looking at the experience, like what am I missing in my experience of the scientific process? Because actually, as you were saying, that uh, about scientists are some of the most imaginative people alive. That actually, the scientific, you know, we've kind of divided things out. Yes, the imaginary, the imaginary has been dismissed in some kind of common sense ideas, but. Um, I think scientists who are really at that cutting edge—they know because they live it. It's this imaginative process of association and breakthrough that happens. It's the way that life works in terms of a um, in terms of a larger sense of the mind. Um, also, I'll just point out because you brought up Aboriginals, and maybe this is something to end with, is that I think it's a radical idea. That was written about beautifully by a man called Sean Kane. That safe for imaginal futures is not just about like you don't have to create them from nothing because that's again that idea of like an ind- being an individual in a dead world just kind of making things. Uh, creation can be just listening to something that's been given to you that you can hear in a sense. Um, you know, in other cultures, it's like the land is talking to you. That's what myth is in other cultures that Sean Kane talks about, that, you know, it's the land, a place telling a tale through human beings. So, um, so mythos then is discovered or it's co-created by humans, and I think that that is an interesting way of seeing myth in general is that myth, is a way of, and even Joseph Campbell said this, of opening to the unknown and living with the unknown um, and making relationship with it. If we can do that and imagine futures that, um, and, and you know, the invitation of imaginal futures is to all, anyone, from children to, um, you know, nuclear physicists to philosophers, to school teachers, whoever—it's about everyone, because we are at this critical moment in history. Really, with their own unique gifts, imagining what's possible, because we don't know yet what's possible. So let's all imagine, and um, and if you'd like to be part of the project, you know, any kind of you know any kind of imagining, um, but really bringing your best to it. Because we need your best, <laughs> the world needs your best if we are to continue um, as a, you know human beings on this earth. So,
1: uh, Dr. Carla Stang, what wonderful closing words there, and and what an inspiration to uh, speak with somebody who's so familiar with the the huge scope of of myth and able to plug it in to a sort of academic understanding that could eventually be of use to us when we're trying to piece together in a more academic way the nature of reality and 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 the nature of the human condition dr callestang thank you so much um please do uh, go and uh, look at uh, this this wonderful book, Walk to the River in Amazonia. Please do get on to the Dark Mountain Project and to particularly to Imaginal Futures if you're interested in this idea of co-curating cur- co- uh, uh, our own future, both as a society and a, as individuals. Um, wishing you very much the best.
0: I wanted to add that we will be teaching a course probably at Embercoom in England on Imaginal Futures, which will be a multidisciplinary, probably a year-long course, where you can really, um, where these issue, this kind of imaginative um, function will be, um, will be developing that and learning from people who have done so.
1: Oh wow! Well, please do. I'm, I will certainly get that into the show notes. Is there a website where people can find out about that? Is that all on Imaginal Futures?
0: Um, it's not yet, but it will be um, on Imaginal Features and on the Mbukum website. Um, the woman, the other two women I'd like to also mention who were part of the key players of that project are Rachel Fleming, who's the director of Ember Coombe, um, and used to be the director of Schumacher a College and Emma George.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you. As I say, um, Carla, we'll get all of that into the show notes um and thank you very very much and wishing you very much the best with all of your future projects thank you
0: very interesting